I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 13th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that a parent's primary relationship should be with their spouse rather than with their child to avoid diminishing the marital bond. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On February 21st, our lesson is the 13th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, and our text for this morning is found in the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis and the 27th and 28th verses, which read as follows. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last episode, Isaac was comforted by after his mother's death by the wife that his father's servant procured for him. Rebecca was Isaac's beautiful cousin from Abraham's homeland and a young woman that fit into the family circle. And just as Isaac needed comfort, Abraham also needed comfort after Sarah's death. Genesis 25, 1 and 2 says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now, it is not good for a man to be alone, even if he is 137 years old, as was Abraham, and old Abraham could still function. Abraham gave Isaac six younger half-brothers to add to his one older half-brother, Ishmael. And Ishmael had already been sent away from Abraham's camp so that he would not interfere with Isaac's inheritance. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 5 and 6 records, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, 
but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Now Sarah was Abraham's wife. Isaac was Abraham's son. And interestingly, the Bible records that the other children that Abraham fathered were considered the sons of their mothers, whom the Bible calls Abraham's concubines rather than Abraham's wife. Now, the dictionary definition of a concubine is a woman that cohabits with the man without the benefit of marriage, one who lives with the man but has a social status less than that of a wife. So shacking up did not start in the 1970s. Men have been living with and enjoying the company of women without the benefit of marriage since Genesis. And wives are generally jealous about their prerogatives when dealing with the child of a concubine. Abraham kept his commitment to Sarah even after her death and treated Isaac, the son of the promise, as his only son. Genesis chapter 25, verse 7 through 11 records, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Bilahar So Isaac took the place of Abraham in the biblical account. Rebekah took the place of Sarah, even to the point that Rebekah was barren, as was Sarah. Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 through 23 tells us, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And ultimately, Sarah had the two children, a hairy child named Esau, which means hairy, and his twin brother Jacob, which means trickster. And as the story progresses, we will see family dysfunction between these twins, even as we saw dysfunction between Ishmael and Isaac. Our text, Genesis chapter 25 Verse 27 and 28 record, so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac, were not really rivals because they were born 14 years apart and had two different mothers. The rivalry in their case was more between their mothers as Sarah had Hagar run out of the camp. Esau and Jacob, however, were twins with the same parents, but they had two different personalities. 
Esau was an outdoors fellow, a less domesticated man, while Jacob was more of a homebody. Two children, two different personalities. Now, people with similar personality styles and interests fit more easily with one another, and parents generally find it easier to relate to children that share their interests and personality styles than children that do not. Now, Isaac grew up with a father who was a nomad, a man that did not put down roots, but wandered from place to place. After all those years in Canaan, the only land Abraham actually owned was his burial plot. Isaac grew up with his father, living off the land, eating the wild game that he and his father hunted as they wandered. Rebecca, however, was a city dweller as she grew up in the established Mesopotamian city of Nahor. Two parents, two different experiences. Now Esau enjoyed wandering with his father and developed the lifestyle of Abraham and Isaac and the same taste for wild game. But even as Isaac took his oldest son with him, Rebekah kept her younger son under her wing and Jacob became the mild-mannered, domesticated man. So dad, Isaac, had his son and mom, Rebekah, had hers, and that's the way their relationships developed. Now, this is not a good thing. In any marriage, the primary relationship is to be between husband and wife. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, husbands and wives are not born identical twins. Genesis tells us that spouses can become one flesh by joining with one another. To achieve this, the primary and most constant interaction for spouses should be with one another. But when the spouses become parents and have a child whose personality is a closer match to one of them than the other, the parent whose personality matches that of the child may decide to sow the bad seed of making his or her primary relationship with the child rather than with their spouse, which diminishes the continuation of the development of the marital bond. This inappropriate relationship can easily be rationalized by the fact that the parent is only raising their child which is their responsibility. And should this happen, the child may actually become a buffer between husband and wife. Our text, Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 and 28, tells us that Isaac and Rebekah did this. Isaac's primary familial relationship was with Esau, while Rebekah's primary familial relationship was with Jacob. Now, the fruit of this problem develops when the children grow up. If either or both spouses have a primary relationship with their child or children rather than their spouse, the parents may find themselves beset by that which psychologists call the empty nest syndrome when the children leave home. While spouses should continue primary bonding with one another while raising children, they may change direction and make their primary bond with their children rather than with one another. 
But the plan of God for children is that they are visitors in your home, long-term visitors, but visitors nonetheless. And at some point, visitors go home. In the case of children, they go to establish their own homes. And when the children leave, those with whom the spouses are primarily bonded are no longer there. And the lack of a bond between the spouses leads to this empty nest situation. Now, just after my wife and I married, we made quite a few weekend trips to her mother's house in Pontiac, Michigan. This was back in the 1970s, before churches had daycare centers. Now, my wife's mother is a devout Catholic, and as a dutiful husband, I accompanied both my wife and her mother to church. And I saw quite a different seating plan in the Catholic church than I saw in the Protestant churches that I normally attended, and I learned the meaning of stair steps as it applied to children. Now, generally in the Catholic church, most families had several children and all the members of the family sat in one pew. Dad sat on the end of the pew by the aisle. Mom sat next to dad. The tallest child sat next to mom and the other children sat next to each other with the height of the heads descending going down the pew. Now, my previous church experiences were completely different. Whenever I remember seeing a husband and wife in church together, the children generally sat between the husband and wife. So if Isaac and Rebecca had taken their children to church, Isaac would have sat on the aisle with Esau next to him, Jacob next, and Rebecca on the opposite side of the family. And as I studied the issues of marriage, I learned an adage that pointed out the seating difference to me. And the adage was, no one should ever come between a husband and a wife. And I made that the case in the classes that I taught. I was teaching a Bible study one day, and a husband and wife were sitting side by side. There was one chair between them, as the wife had spread out several reference books to try to keep up with my teaching and needed more room than one person would normally need. Now, another woman a preacher's wife, as a matter of fact, came into the class, and since she was late, she started to sit in the first available chair she saw, which was the chair between the husband and wife. So I immediately stopped my lecture because I saw the opportunity for a more important lesson. I'm sorry, I said to the preacher's wife, but you can't sit there. I never let anyone sit between a husband and a wife. Now, if you just want to sit next to this woman's husband, you can sit on his other side but you can't sit between them. I just don't allow that. Now, the preacher's wife was not actually making a play for the woman's husband, but I just said that as a bit of humor to make the point stick. But no one, parents, children, relatives, or friends, should ever intentionally come between a man and his wife. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6, Jesus tells us, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But children can come to, sometimes come between a husband and wife. 
And one of the reasons that I recommend ballroom dancing as an activity for married couples is to either avoid or repair the lack of a bond between spouses raising children. Dancing is physical, sensual, and it gives the partners a shared activity that leads to mutual pleasure and augments the creation of a bond. Dancing also demonstrates the molding of the marital bond in a public situation. I noticed that when my wife and I go dancing, unmarried women give full body hugs as a greeting to the unmarried men that they meet at the club. In fact, Unmarried women give full body hugs as a greeting to the married men that they meet at the club. But the unmarried women with whom I come into contact are very respectful of the relationship between my wife and me. They generally extend a hand rather than trying to hug me. And so should a married couple decide to take up ballroom dancing, the spouses should dance with one another the majority of the time, if not exclusively. And I do know of one married couple in which the wife decided to learn dancing and the husband did not. Their lack of a bond grew to an unbearable point after which they divorced. Of course, ballroom dancing is only one of many things that spouses can do together. But I think that dancing is unique as a shared activity because it requires the equal participation of both spouses. When, for instance, I watch mixed doubles in professional tennis, the winning strategy is to attack the woman, since she has the weaker strokes. And many other physical activities that spouses can share highlight the physical inequity between the spouses. But in dancing, neither partner has a stronger or weaker role. Both partners are equally involved in the activity. As a matter of fact, I once read a quote that Ginger Rogers made after someone praised Fred Astaire for his complicated dance steps. Ginger said, well, I did all the steps that Fred did, and I did them backwards in high heels. So my point is that no one should come between a husband and wife, be it emotionally, psychologically, or physically. The marital relationship is designed to be every person's primary relationship. Unfortunately, Isaac did not get the memo. Not only did he, not, not only did he allow his sons to split his house, he also allowed the potential for another man to come between him and his wife. Genesis 26, 1 through 3 records, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. So God instructed Isaac to stay in the land of the Philistines. Isaac had the Lord on his side, and he also had the military resources that his father left him. But Genesis chapter 26, verse 6 and 7 tells us, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Well, Isaac had no excuse for telling this lie because he had the Lord on his side, he had his army on his side, and Rebecca was his cousin, not his sister, so he couldn't truthfully use his father's excuse. If Isaac was actually afraid, 
he was irrationally so. And Isaac wasn't that afraid because he didn't actually give his wife to anyone or keep it a secret that he made love to her. Genesis 26, 8 through 11 records, Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech says, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, although the Philistines didn't worship God, they did understand and respect the relationship between a man and his wife. Abimelech would have fit nicely in my Bible study class, and I might even have been able to convince him to become saved. But after a while, Abimelech didn't want Isaac around anymore. As Genesis 26, 12 through 14 and 16 tells us, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Isaac began to prosper and continued prospering until he had become, until he became very prosperous for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him, and Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now I mention this to spotlight the irrational nature of Isaac hiding his relationship with his wife, and the fact that even pagan men recognize that they should leave your wife alone if they know that she is your wife. And I reiterate, no one should come between a man and his wife, be they parents, children, relatives, friends, or even strangers. Now, I hope that one day my son makes an intelligent choice of a young woman to marry, and I will give him whatever counsel that I can when he reveals his selection. But my son is a grown man, and if he decides to make a choice with which I have an objective reason to disagree— after I present him with the objective biblical information that makes me question his decision, I will then respect his decision. Ultimately, a husband and a wife have to struggle with their differences, whatever they may be, to become one flesh. And even if you marry the person who is the most objectively well-matched to you, the possibility still exists that a situation will come along in which you or your spouse may choose to do something that would put your marriage at risk, as Isaac did when he lied to the men of Gerar. So the key to understand is that the purpose of marriage is to promote an exclusively close and intense interpersonal bond between spouses and to further understand that any activity or relationship undertaken by either spouse that would undermine or deteriorate the close, intense, interpersonal bond between them is an activity or relationship that should be modified so that the marital bond is not negatively affected. God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth 
developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. And we cannot achieve the objective that God has given us if we do not cherish and nurture the cooperative coalition that we have with our spouse. Now, I've read a couple of counseling case histories in preparation for this sermon. In both of them, one spouse mistreated the other over a period of years. In one, the man was periodically unfaithful, having had several affairs over the course of the marriage. In the other, the woman was cold to her husband and had cut him off from intimacy after their children were born. Neither marriage was immediately headed for divorce. In both cases, the partner that was originally not behaving well realized their sin and did their best to reverse their behavior and repair their marriage. However, in both cases, the partner against whom the other spouse sinned rejected their spouse's attempt to repent and improve their marital situation, but was determined to maintain their marriage while simultaneously holding a grudge. And in both cases, the prescription was the same. It was time for the aggrieved spouse to make a decision to either give up their grudge or to divorce because there is no point in trying to create a cooperative coalition if one of the parties refuses to cooperate. And as I said last week after reviewing the situation in the garden, neither men nor women have a corner on sin. When we make wedding vows, we vow to love and cherish until death do us part. Both men and women can break that vow, and I would guess that if it was possible to develop the statistical data to compare bad behavior by marital partners, by gender, you would probably find that the distribution between the genders would be 50-50. There are probably as many cold, unresponsive wives as there are philandering husbands. But John tells us in 1 John 3.23, and this is God's commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as Jesus gave us commandment. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, these quotes are not specifically written to married couples, and Jesus is not specifically praying for married couples only. But these passages of Scripture certainly apply to married couples as a subset of those whom God is commanding and those for whom Jesus is praying. Because, as Paul tells us, believers are to be married to other believers. And God tells Moses in Leviticus 19 and 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, once again, this is not written to married couples in particular, 
But the population to whom it is written certainly includes married couples. Spouses should have more, not less love for one another than they do for the general population. The two are to become one flesh. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So we are to nourish and cherish one another. We are to give up vengeance and grudges. We are to make every possible attempt to become one with one another. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the standard. God gave the most precious possession that he had, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and sent him to earth to suffer the persecution of the sinful men that he had come to save. God did not send Jesus to the ignorant, to the pagans, or to the infidels, but God sent Jesus to the people to whom he had previously given the prophecy that Jesus was coming. God sent Jesus to the people who were offering burnt offerings on the altar as a sweet-smelling aroma representing the relationship between themselves and him. God sent Jesus to the people who maintained his temple, who believed in his word, and who venerated his prophets. God sent Jesus to his chosen people in fulfillment of the prophecy that he made to them of a coming Messiah. But God's knowledgeable chosen people killed Jesus. They persecuted Jesus, the son of the God of glory, and then put him to death on the old rugged cross. How much vengeance could God have extracted? How large of a grudge could God have held against those who killed his son? But interestingly, Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 31 tells us, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Israel, the nation closest to God at the time, murdered Jesus, and because of their sin, God retaliated by granting them repentance and forgiveness of sin. So that's the example of God. And if God provides us with the example of loving the people that voted to kill his son, we should at least be able to love one another, especially the person with whom we have taken wedding vows. And I think that is the verifiable standard of godliness. First Timothy 5 and 8 tells us, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And provided for is not restricted to making money. Spouses need one another to provide one another the loving human relationship that will make our earthly lives complete. So don't allow anyone to come between you and your spouse emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually and love your spouse even as Christ loves the church. And that is our lesson for today.
Let us pray. This is God, our Father. We thank you for these lessons that you have given us from your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand that which you are telling us. And that you would help us to make our marital relations the type of relations that you would like us to have. Make them those that will help us, Lord, to learn wisdom and to learn knowledge in preparation for the further responsibility that you have for us in our eternal life. Build the bonds that we have with one another and help us to develop such a relationship that no one can come between us. We ask you, Lord, to insulate our marriages and make us one with one another, even as you said in your very first book of the Bible. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.